interesting thing about uh, hairstyles and fashions. Uh, they are always changing, are they not? Uh, those of you like me who grew up in this high school in the 70s, uh, you know, we had the best, of course, fashions. You're never, you're never going to top those, young people, because they are the, the, the supreme. And the hairstyles of the 70s, uh, those are as well. Uh, things will never um, trump in this day and age. But they're always changing, right? Uh, and we know that. Uh, we can look back at our old wedding pictures and our kids can laugh at those. Um, but... Some things, we have to ask the question, are, are they going to change or are, are they going to stay? Are, are they going to last? Uh, or, or like hairstyles and fashion, are they just a passing fad? Uh, we ask often these types of forecast questions. Uh, um, it's kind of fun sometimes to look back and see how we answered them. Uh, for example, back in 1903, Henry Ford's lawyer asked the local banker if he should invest in the Ford Motor Company. Uh, here's that banker's ill-conceived response. Quote, the horse is here to stay, but the automobile is only a novelty and a fad. That prediction didn't last too well. <laughs> uh, here's another one more recently from the 1980s. Apple computers debuted their new Macintosh computer. I actually had one of those. Anybody else have one of those? There's a very cool, okay? Um, many at that time seasoned computer professionals when asked about this new computer uh, dismissed them. They were used to the more powerful computers like uh, IBM. And they dismissed the Apple as, quote, an underpowered toy. Forty years later, the Apple company has 1.4 billion, with a B, users around the world. As of April 1st, this tech giant is one of only six companies in the world valued at more than one trillion, with a T, dollars. That's pretty good for a toy maker. <laughs> Oh, and by the way, if back in 1980 you had a spare $10,000, if you'd invested it in Apple, today you'd be $6.7 million richer. Hmm, we missed that out on that one. But that, 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 that's the old saying, right? Time will tell. Time will tell. In our passage today, uh, we find a scene in the days of the early church in the book of Acts where this same sentiment is being voiced in regard to the movement started with Jesus and now being continued by um, his early followers. And they're asking the question, will this church, will these first disciples of Jesus, will they survive? Does this movement begun by this guy from Nazareth, does it have staying power? Will it last? Or is it just a passing fad? Time will tell. And today, what impact do these questions have for us as seekers, doubters, even people who might find themselves discouraged? People still ask the same questions they were asking back in the book of Acts. Is Christianity the real deal? Or is it a passing fad? 
Does Jesus of Nazareth have staying power? Is he worth following? Am I going to be in or am I out? That's the question. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Um, it's been four weeks since we've been in our study of Acts. Um, we left right in the middle of chapter 5 on Easter Sunday with uh, Peter making a speech before the religious leaders who had uh, arrested Peter and the rest of the 12. And uh, so what I want to do is I want to go back to that speech, read that, and then get to our passage, okay? So Acts chapter 5, you'll want to turn to verse 27. That's where uh, we're going to start, but that's not actually our passage, okay? Acts 5, verse 27, and when they the religious council leaders, had brought them, the apostles, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood, that's Jesus, upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers, he raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now we get to the passage for today. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged. And they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in high honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, the rest of the council, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400 people, joined him. He was killed though, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. But he too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it, to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them, and then charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Lord, use this example, this thrilling passage to challenge and encourage us today. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Christian influence is growing in these first chapters of Acts, but so is the opposition. In chapters four to seven, everything seems to be going wrong. The Jewish opposition is growing. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees called the Sanhedrin, they've been cagey though in their opposition. It's been a gradual intensification. They're deliberate, they're calculating, but they're dead set on wiping out Christianity. At first, these leaders were simply in chapter four, annoyed (laughs) with the Christians. But then when we get to chapter five, they're jealous of their expanding popularity. But now in our passage, they are so angry at Peter and the others' refusal to stop preaching about Jesus that Luke uses a word, enraged, that literally means they were split open with anger. They're so angry, they're talking about execution. The first encounter, the first arrest back in chapter 4, they just arrested Peter and John. This time, they arrest all 12. While the first arrest included a warning and a release, this one includes a beating and a discussion of death, which, spoiler alert, (laughs) is setting us up for the story of Stephen and the others to come. Now, at the same time, though, don't miss this, Luke, as he records these stories, records God's protection and direction to demonstrate whose side God is on. No matter how angry the leaders get, how intense the threats, they are impotent to stop the spread of the gospel, which is the message of Acts. Now, in this scene... There's only one thing that seems to be stopping potential martyrdom in a speech by a leading rabbi. He's a Pharisee. He's named Gamaliel. Uh, He's held in high esteem by the people, so everybody knows him. But he's the only rabbi that's named in the book of Acts. We will find out in chapter 22, he's actually the teacher of Paul. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't know if you can tell. I have trouble pronouncing his name. So if you don't mind, from now on, I'm just going to refer to him as Rabbi G. Okay? Now, and it's a little known fact that actually, I did some research, Rabbi G is his rapper name. <laughs> 50 shekel never caught on. Good. I, I didn't know if you'd catch that one. Thank you. All right. I'm done. We'll see you next week. Uh, no, no, no. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also tried Young Pharisee. I could keep going. Okay, we're stopping there. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> sorry. All right, rap, it goes downhill from there, okay? <laughs> Rabbi G, though, he orders the apostles out of the waiting room, right? He wants to meet with the leaders in private. You know, there's, there's one cool head in this discussion. And his point was very simple. Guys, think before you act. Don't let your emotions make your decisions for you. If he were in our day, just say, chill out, guys. And he uses a history lesson to make his case. He recounts two other rebel leaders, two other rebel movements that had been around Jerusalem before, a guy named Theodos and another named Judas, and not that Judas. Okay? And they were mirror images of each other. 
Things got hot and heavy with these guys until the leader died. And then the supporters just scattered and the movement self-destructed. So Rabbi G has a punchline. He says, if this Jesus movement is like Theodos and Judas of human origin, uh, it will die of its own accord. So don't waste your energy, guys. Let it go. Don't use your emotion by opposing them. On the other hand, if this movement's of God, then no human opposition can stop it. Don't miss the irony of that statement. Who is Rabbi G talking to? The religious leaders of the Jewish faith. How could they ever be in the position of opposing God? Interestingly, this is the only speech by a non-Christian that Luke records in the book of Acts. But it suits his rhetorical purposes in the book to a T. What is the book of Acts if not a continued record of Christianity's growth and influence to prove Rabbi G's very important theological point? If it's of God, You can't stop it. After we get through the 28 chapters of Acts, we'll have witnessed a geographical spread of the early church from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the Mediterranean world. When we get to the last chapter of Acts, we will have seen a numerical explosion. Thousands of people added to the church in one day. At different points of the book. But it's more than just the Jewish religion they will attract. They will attract people from all ethnicities. Samaritans, Ethiopians, Romans, and more. There will be a spread of this movement. So great by the end of this book. That somebody will say. These are the men who have turned the world upside down. Verses 41 to 42 then get to the reaction of the apostles after they're beaten and after they're warned. And and to be honest with you, I just can't get over the matter-of-factness of Luke's narration. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor in the name. Then every day in the temple from house to house, they did not see teaching and preaching. That Christ is Jesus. Uh, Doesn't their reaction strike you as a big deal? Even though it's on the low down, the way he says it. It's a watershed movement. A watershed moment. These 12 guys had just had their backs beaten to a pulp. They were warned that if they kept teaching, there was more to come. And what did they do? Number one, they rejoiced in their pain. Number two, they doubled down in their message. It's like verse 40 never even happened. It's also business-like. You know what these verses describe, 41 and 42? It's just a reaction. A spontaneous, deeply felt response to a very traumatic event. All that trauma, with a very clear warning, it didn't phase them a bit. But it's not just a reaction, it's a revelation. 
of what's in those 12 men's hearts. It's a demonstration of their character. We start to see what makes them tick, what's way down deep inside of their life. You know, when you think about this scene, it wasn't long before in the past of these guys uh, when the exact same guys, oh, except for Matthias who replaced Judas, but the exact same group had the complete opposite reaction to threats of suffering and potential death. Remember the description of their response to Jesus' arrest in the garden? Matthew writes, then all the disciples left him and fled. Does that sound like the same guys to you? (laughs) It was the same religious council raining down the threats and this time they ran for their lives. (laughs) Only the women and the apostle John were brave enough to remain at the foot of the cross. But between then and now, something's changed. Something's clicked. The pennies dropped. It's all started to make sense for these guys. The the confirmation of Jesus in the resurrection, the power of the newly arrived Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, these guys are changed men. And they moved from cowardice amidst the threat of opposition to joy and the actual experience of suffering. How did that happen? Well, it's a good question. And I'd like to point out at least three observations about that change that I think give us insight in how they made that sudden change. Number one, first observation that I see in this passage about these guys is that the resurrection is the catalyst for the change. The risen Jesus is underneath and behind and all around this change. That's what starts it. It's a catalyst. See, they just keep preaching and teaching day after day, publicly in the temple, privately in the houses. They did not stop. They could not stop. They already been arrested twice for preaching Jesus. Did they think the council would lose interest and just ignore it? No, I think we have to go back to Rabbi G's comments to find out the answer. Remember Theodos and Judas? They died in their movement. The leader of these guys, the 12, Jesus, well, he died too. <laughs> but he didn't stay dead. From the early, for the early church, Easter was more than a once a year celebration. It was a daily reminder. They served a risen Lord. Remember Peter and the other's response to the council earlier in chapter five. He says says in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Why? He tells us. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things. And so was the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. 
But this wasn't the first time Peter mentioned the resurrection. If you go back, that'd be an interesting little study for you. Read all of Peter's little sermons and defenses so far in the book of Acts. They all focus on the resurrection. Peter's first sermon in Acts 2, verse 24. God raised him up. His second mini-sermon in Acts chapter 3. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Then his first defense before the council, Acts chapter 4. Whom God raised from the dead. Are you sensing a pattern? The apostles, they didn't understand Jesus. Until the cross. But they didn't understand the cross until the resurrection. It was a catalyst for everything they did. For everything. The resurrection changed it. They went from doubt to boldness, from fear to courage, from looking at a distance to being all in. See, without the resurrection, Rabbi G's right. Jesus' little band, they'd have suffered the same fate who follow those who follow Thetis and Judas. But the resurrection changes everything. You know, for us, it's the same thing. We need to celebrate Easter every day. That's the catalyst for all that we do. If Jesus isn't risen, we might as well go our own ways and quit wasting our time on Sundays. As we pause for a minute to think about the application of this first point for us, I kind of want to speak to those of you who are here who might be struggling with doubt today. Should I really commit my life to this Jesus? You know, on on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins through his death. But when he rose three days later, he proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is truly God. And that he can give us the gift of a new life. And just as that penny dropped for the disciples in the book of Acts, understanding the truth of Jesus' resurrection will move you from your doubts and questions, from a debate in your head to a confidence in your heart. I encourage you to find rest in Jesus' resurrection. Number one, the resurrection was the catalyst. Observation number two, their eyes were opened to kingdom reality. Number two, their eyes were opened to a kingdom reality. Remember, they left a beating rejoicing. They've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name One commentator calls that phrase an oxymoron. You know what those are? Words that don't go together. Jumbo shrimp, (laughs) civil war, plastic silverware, wolverine victory. They don't go, (laughs) thank you. They don't go together. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, (laughs) The Near Eastern culture of this time, just like the Eastern culture of our day, they were a shame honor culture. Your value as a person, your worth came from how much honor you brought to yourself and to your family and to your tribe. And if you were to bring shame, your life was literally worthless. 
Uh, The best example for me that I have of that is World War II movies and books uh, where they depict depict the behavior of Japanese officers uh, whose troops might suffer defeat. Remember those times? Rather than being taken prisoner, being taken alive, the officers would commit ritual suicide, harakiri. They would rather die with honor than keep living in shame. It's the same kind of culture in the day of the apostles. We have a group of men, though, who actually found worth by suffering dishonor. How is dishonor in that culture a cause for joy? That does not compute unless we look at it from a different kingdom source. Unless we look at it from a God's perspective. You see... uh, When the disciples experienced the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, they were given a new framework for seeing the world. They're given a new pair of glasses, and they lived in an upside-down kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. It was a vision of life totally at odds with the prevailing view, even the religious opinion of that day. They had differences about right and wrong, good and bad, wise and foolish, success and failure. The disciples didn't react in the normal way because they didn't view life in the normal way. They had witnessed Jesus live it out. They'd heard him teach it again and again. But now they got it. Sometimes I wonder, why are they getting it now? Why did it take so long? I think I have an answer to that. Remember what happened in in, in Acts chapter 2? The Holy Spirit came. Remember they're up in that room? Tongues of fire, all that stuff. The Holy Spirit came just as Jesus had promised. And why was it so important that the Holy Spirit would come? Well, Jesus told them. Back in the upper room, in John 14, one of the most audacious statements Jesus made. When he said, it's going to be better for you guys if I'm gone. Wait a second. If you're putting your whole life in on following this guy, how in the world is it better if he's gone? Well, here's what he says. When I'm gone, the helper, John 14, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. He will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, when the Spirit came in Acts 2, it wasn't just about signs and wonders. It was about helping those people understand, finally, that's what Jesus meant. Now I get it. And they see the world from a different perspective. We all, we all react to life based upon our deepest assumptions about life. <laughs> and guess what? Reactions rarely lie. Because we don't have time to put on our false fronts. <laughs> With reactions, we get, what we get is who we are at the core. And reactions are never born in a vacuum. Our life experience, what we're taught, what we ruminate on and meditate on, what we choose to love, what we choose to pay attention to, all contribute to our reactions. Hmm. We live right now in a sea of information, in in a world of hot takes. You know what those are? 
<laughs> One author recently commented, we are not made to have access to this many people's opinions, musings, and emotions at any given time. We're not made for that. From Twitter feeds to Facebook posts to podcasts to 24-hour news channels, the cacophony or cacophony of voices is overwhelming, is it not? Not that any given one is necessarily wrong or immoral. They just become confusing and they become exhausting. With the very real potential to crowd out, or better, to shout out, the gentle voice of the Spirit in our lives. And it's not just information saturation that wears us down. It's opinion overload that fries our brains and numbs our hearts. <laughs> it's not just life, but how to make sense of life that we ask. How to evaluate life. What makes life good or bad? It's not just enough now to experience life. We need to find out what so-and-so's opinion is about the event. <laughs> hey, Ohio State just signed a big-time quarterback, which they did. I wonder what the Eleven Warriors website thinks of that. Hey, Mike DeWine, Joe Biden just said this. I wonder what fill-in-the-blank commentator thinks. <laughs> the higher the pitch, the greater the volume, the more hyperbole is added in, the more hooked we become. Trust me, I'm right there with you. Sometimes I wonder, what am I doing to myself? The early church did not share the same information and opinion saturation that we have. They didn't have Twitter or podcast or Fox or CNN. No, <laughs> they had it easy. <laughs> they just had religious leaders and Roman authorities breathing down their necks and threatening their very lives. I'd say their stress is a little stronger than ours, at least in the West. Yet they face that pressure in a worthy and faithful way. How? <laughs> Sometimes when I, I read and study a passage, I, I like to use my sanctified imagination. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. I don't know if you know that. Um, <laughs> and and I, I thought, you know, when Rabbi G, remember when he started, got to talk, he sent the 12 out of the room? I wondered, what were they talking about out there in the hall? You ever ask that question? I just wondered. Well, you, know, you know, I'm guessing, number one, they prayed, right? These guys prayed. When times got tough, they got on their knees. I know that. But I wondered if they started asking themselves, I wonder what Jesus would do right now if he were here. But, you know, maybe, maybe Peter piped up, guys, do you remember that time when Jesus took us up to that mountain to get away from the crowd, do you remember what he taught us? <laughs> James piped up, yeah, I remember those sayings. I remember, I remember what were they? the first ones. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And his brother John chimed in. John chimes in. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Then Matthew responds, yeah, that's radical. But you know what? Right now, I'm thinking about those last ones he told us. 
at the end. Uh, remember those? Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Jesus said, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. But on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Jesus had hot takes. They're called the Beatitudes. You ever try to figure out how to handle life? <laughs> Rising gas prices and inflation, wars and rumors of wars. What's coming next? Well, this just then, breaking news. Jesus said, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. <laughs> Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The 12 were saturated with that. That's how they thought. That's how they responded to stuff in life. Who are you listening to today? Whose opinion forms your opinion of life? Do you find yourself in the clutch of other people's hot takes? The apostles in Acts 5 reveal a life saturated with the teachings of Jesus. Motivated by his example. They had different values. Kingdom values. Using kingdom scales. Their joy. It came from a different well. Hmm. Whose opinion forms your opinions of life? That's observation number two. Their eyes were open to the kingdom reality. Observation one was their resurrection was the catalyst. And the final observation is they want to walk in the path of the hero. They want to walk in the path of their hero. Look again at Luke's description. They rejoice because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, they didn't rejoice because they suffered dishonor. It was because they suffered dishonor for Jesus. Their archagos, their hero. Where do I get that? Well, go back again up to Peter's comments in, earlier in the chapter. Verse 29, he said, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by him a tree. Here he goes. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, archagos, and savior. Now, that term that um, the ESV translate as leader is a very unusual word. It's only used four times in the New Testament. Archagos, which really means arch ego. <laughs> and it's used four times, two in Acts and two in Hebrews, every time for Jesus. It could mean a leader, a trailblazer, a trailblazer, a pioneer. In Hebrews, here's how he uses it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, Archagos, and perfecter of our faith. One commentator who did a lot of study on this word says that this word, Archagos, when it was used in the Greek culture, was often used 
for their legendary heroes like Hercules. Especially when it was combined, like verse 31 of chapter 5, with the word Savior. You see, it would be used to describe someone engaged in mortal combat, battling over life and death. Why is Luke using that? And will Hebrews use that word to describe Jesus? Is he Hercules? <laughs> He is a man who, who faced death bravely. Right? He took on all comers, willing to lay down his life for his friends. But Jesus was a very different kind of hero when you think about it. See, the, the Greek heroes like, like Hercules are like our superheroes. Right? At some point, they get these superpowers and they're able you know, to do their super achievements. To face danger and save the day. I mean, Peter Parker was just a kid from Queens. And then he got bit by a radioactive spider. He became Super Spider-Man. Not Superman. It's a different story. He became Spider-Man. He didn't become a hero till he got his superpower. But that's not how it worked with Jesus. See, Jesus didn't just have superpower. He had all power. He had cosmic power. He made heaven and earth. He had all glory and all power. <laughs> but Jesus gave it up. Totally opposite of our world's idea of a hero. He gave up his power. He gave up his glory. He made himself vulnerable. He made himself actually killable. So he could do battle with the forces of evil. Hmm. The apostles were asked to follow the path of their archikos, their hero. They were counted worthy to follow that path. And could there be any higher calling? Of course, in this case, it was not the usual hero and not the usual heroic path. And that's why they could find joy in becoming more vulnerable, not less. Weaker, not stronger. In greater danger, not safer. Joy in what they could give up, not what they could attain. So much that they were willing to preach Jesus and suffer for his honor. We've already commented on this abrupt change in these 12 guys before. But, but, but I can't think but observe another thing here that, that contributes to it. You say, remember, they failed totally. Okay, just, just totally blew it. And, and they had to face the music. Do you, do you remember that? See, after Jesus was resurrected, those guys that totally blew it, they were with him for 40 days. I don't know how you'd feel, but I don't know. <laughs> and you know, in all the gospel accounts of all the time they spent together and in all those meetings, Jesus never scolds them. He never upbraids them. He never scoffs at their false bravado back at the Last Supper. He doesn't even doubt their ability to live for him in the future. You know what he does? 
He sends them out. He commissions them. He places his faith in them to spread the word with the power of the spirit throughout the world. You ever had a teacher, coach, mentor uh, that you let down? But they just moved right past it and placed even greater faith in your ability to get the job done right the next time. Do you ever have somebody like that in your life? What'd that do to your motivation and your outlook? You'd run through walls for them. No questions asked. Why? They believed in you even though they've seen you at your worst. What if that person was also your hero? And what if that person was also your savior? They wanted to walk in the path with their hero. Studying this passage this week reminds me of one of my favorite stories that I've heard many years ago as a sermon illustration. It's a story of running a race, and I wanted to share it with you in closing. Uh, it's about a guy named Bill Broadhurst. Uh, he, back this is in the 70s and 80s, where they used to run 10Ks all the time, six miles, right? And he loved to run, and, and, he, and he was just an amateur runner, but he had, he had a favorite. He had a hero, a guy by the name of Bill Rogers, who in that era held the, held the American record for uh, the 10K. Low, high 20s, low 30s. And so Bill, Bill Broadhurst read in the paper that Bill Rogers was going to be running a race in Omaha, Nebraska, which wasn't far from Bill Broadhurst's house. And he thought, I would love to run a race with Bill Rogers. My hero. I'd love. So he drove to Omaha, Nebraska on that Saturday to run the 10K. Now, Bill Broadhurst, like I said, was an amateur runner. He did not run with Bill Rogers because Bill Rogers won, as you might expect. Bill Broadhurst was way back in the pack. And in fact, I didn't tell you, Bill Broadhurst had had a mini stroke early in his life and his right side didn't work right. So when he ran, he would step and kind of have to drag. Step and drag. So he was actually really slow. Bill Rogers that day won the race in the usual 30 minutes. 30 minutes, Bill Broadhurst wasn't even halfway done because he had to step and drag and step and drag. In fact, an hour into the race, he was barely halfway through. The, 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 the police took out all the cones, took them away, so the traffic started back on the road, so he had to go run the sidewalk. And Bill Broadhurst was getting kind of discouraged. In fact, some unthinking kids yelled, hey, mister, you missed the race. But he kept going because his hero had run that race. And then he got around that last bend and towards where the finish line was and his heart sank because they took down the banner. There was no finish line anymore. They almost stopped. But nah, Bill Rogers ran. He finished. I'm going to finish. So he got to the end and he didn't know this. But to the side in, in, in an alleyway was a group of people. And they were waiting for him to finish. And in that group of people was Bill Rogers. He had heard the story. And he stuck around. And when Bill Broadhurst crossed that finish line, Bill Rogers was there to welcome him home. And Bill Rogers took off of his neck the medal he had won for winning that race, and he put it on Bill Broadhurst and says, Broadhurst, you're the winner of this race. You're the winner. I love the Bible for how honest it is 
You know what it tells us about those 12 apostles and the gospels? That they lived their life step drag, step drag, barely making it, stumbling all the way. But they kept their eyes focused on the hero. And their hero was there and will be there waiting with open arms. Not only is he in the race, he's run the race and he's won the race for us. Are you doubting this morning? Look to the power of the resurrection. Are you being pulled by opinions of the world? Immerse yourself in the truth of God's word. Are you standing at a distance? Maybe you see Christianity as part of your life, but not as the center of your life. Jesus tells us to go all in. And are you discouraged? Fix your eyes on the one who not only shows us how to run the race, but who ran it for us. Lord, thank you so much for the story of these 12 guys who were just like us. They didn't have any superpowers. They just had your spirit, same spirit we have. They just had your Jesus teachings, the same teachings we have. They just had the church, the community, the same community we have. Lord, help us to learn from them. Help us to be challenged by them, but help us to be encouraged by them today as we run the race. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.